You're listening to the weekly podcast of the services at Stonegate Fellowship Church in Midland, Texas. For more information about Stonegate, visit StonegateFellowship.com. All right, gentlemen, uh, welcome. Glad you're here today. If I haven't uh, met you before, my name's Scott Hall, and I'll be teaching you this morning. Uh, Patrick had to be away today. He's actually got about a five-week run. Uh, I won't be with you until the springtime, uh, but uh, it was good to jump in here today to be with you. We, we're going to start in Hebrews and just launch from there. I understand that Patrick got through the first two verses last week, and uh, actually I was supposed to be teaching you Hebrews chapter 6 today, so that's where we thought we were going to be. Um, so I'm regrouping with you and going to have you think through this idea of the supremacy of Christ in a very practical way today. You're going to be uh, digging through a great book, uh, Hebrews, uh, over these next few weeks together. And, you know, the good thing is, is you are moving slowly. Uh, Hebrews, in my opinion, is really just not a book you can read very quickly and capture uh, really the, the wealth of uh, wisdom and theology that God gives us in this great book. So as you guys walk through that slowly and think about the idea of the supremacy of Christ and you see that kind of unpacked and unraveled for you, if you will, in the book of Hebrews, what I want to do is plant uh, a few thoughts this morning in your mind about uh, how that plays out practically in our lives. I mean, it's one thing to know about the supremacy of Christ and believe that and hold that high maybe as the anthem or the banner in our lives, but it's something quite different to figure out how the rubber meets the road, if you will. How you take this big theological concept of the supremacy of Christ and live that out at work today. So I want to try to just start the conversation of how we're supposed to do that. Uh, Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be in Hebrews. I'm going to jump to Colossians and we're going to finally land in Thessalonians. All right, let's pray together. Father, uh, thank you for this morning and I thank you for... uh, the reality that you're with us here, uh, that your spirit is, is moving and, and working uh, in and around us and, and in our midst. And I thank you for that, Father. I pray today that you would open up the eyes of our heart, that we might be able to uh, see well uh, with our hearts this morning, with our minds. Uh, Father, teach us and show us how to oh, take this big idea of the supremacy of Christ and practically Uh, implement that in our lives. So we thank you for that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's look at Hebrews chapter 1. I'll start uh, just with a couple of verses that you guys read and then be ready to turn to Colossians chapter 1 after that. So the scripture reads in Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. You guys maybe talked about that last week, that Jesus is the creative part of the Godhead. Verse three, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's who Christ is. He is supreme in all things. He is God himself. He is the exact representation of God, the scripture says. Now turn over to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 15. Colossians 1, 15. 
Hebrews tells us this who Jesus is. He's undeniably God. What separates your belief system away from any other belief system in the world is that Jesus is actually divine. That he is God. And so this takes it a step further. Look at verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. Jesus, he, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, I don't have time to camp out on this, but if you have guys that come knock on your doors and start talking to you about Jesus, and I'm talking specifically about uh, someone belonging to an organization with the Mormons or with the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they're going to try to trip you up on this verse. They will talk to you about Jesus. They will talk to you about the fact that they believe he is the son of God, but they do not believe what we just read in Hebrews and what we just read in this first piece of Colossians chapter one, that he is God. They do not believe that he is divine. And that is what separates you from one of the fastest growing religious organizations in our culture today that calls themselves Christians. But they are not followers of Christ if indeed they do not believe that Jesus Christ is divine. If Jesus isn't divine, we're wasting our time this morning. If Jesus is not divine, then all we do for Christ and in the name of Christ is in vain. And it really is all about a set of laws and religious practices. The linchpin to the gospel is that God made himself, fle- made himself flesh and dwelt among us. So I went there because the verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What either of these two groups will do when they come to the door, if you start pressing the idea that Jesus is divine, they're gonna take you to this scripture and some other scriptures that talks about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation. In other words, they do not believe that Jesus existed eternally, that God created him. That's a misunderstanding of this scripture. What the scripture is talking about here in verse 15 is the reality that Jesus was the one that was the first to be resurrected. And that's what this word firstborn is getting after here. Verse 16, for by, all, in, by him all things were created. So here's the idea again we saw in Hebrews that Jesus is the creative part of the Godhead. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are hold together or held together. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So here's our definition of what we saw in verse 15 of what firstborn means. Firstborn means that he was the firstborn from the dead. In other words, God made himself flesh, dwelt among us, Jesus concarne, if you will, Jesus with flesh. And so he dwelt among us. He was 100% man, 100% God. He died as man. God used the same power uh, then to resurrect him from the dead and he was the firstborn from the dead so that in everything he might be preeminent. Now here's the idea of the supremacy of Christ again. He was before all things, 
All things were made through him and by him and for him. And even in this idea of resurrection, there was no one resurrected prior to Christ. And even in this idea of the firstborn of the dead, Christ himself is supreme. He's preeminent. He's the first one. And you say, well, wait a minute. There were people in the New Testament that were brought back to life that were dead. That's correct. But they were not resurrected. They were resuscitated. Because each one of those died again right? They weren't brought back from the dead and then they didn't live eternally from that point. They were brought back from the dead so that God might be glorified. Jesus would show his powerful, uh, uh, glorious might through this miracle, but those people died as well. We have two people in the Old Testament that went to uh, heaven without dying, um, but they didn't have to be resurrected. They were just snatched up because God said, it's time, come be with me. And so Jesus is supreme even in this idea of the resurrection. Now this is where it gets good, as if that wasn't good. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through Jesus, God reconciled himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This verse 19 is beautiful, the idea that God himself was pleased to let the fullness of himself dwell in a human bodily form that we know as Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21, what this did for us. And you, you and me, we were once alienated and hostile in our mind. That's the idea that without God, you would not come to him. Without God drawing you or me to himself, we would not by our own desire or our own volition come to God. We can't do that because we are, we are born hostile in our minds. And that's the idea of our hearts being turned towards worldly things and towards ourself prior to God calling us to himself. It's the idea that Jesus talks about in the New Testament where he says no one comes into the Father unless the Father calls them to come. And we see this idea of why being painted in front of us here in verse 21, because we were alienated, we were hostile in our minds. Uh, In Romans chapter five, it says that we are enemies of God. Um, And that's the way we draw breath and, and come into this world. We were hostile in our mind, doing evil deeds. But look at verse 20, 22. He has now reconciled us in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Christ is supreme in all things. God himself was pleased to allow the fullness of his character and his nature to reside in and dwell in a human bodily form that we know as Jesus. Jesus existed for all eternity prior to being born as a baby, but we know him in the flesh as as Jesus, fully man, fully God. Now this is where the plot thickens. We're moving towards this idea of how do we take this teaching, this theology, this knowledge of of God on the topic of the supremacy of Christ and break it down to a very practical level in our lives. In other words, how do you live that out at work today? When you finish a long day of work, how do you go home and live out, draw a realistic picture of the supremacy of Christ at work in your life today? It's a great question. We'll get to the answers here in just a moment or just a portion of them. Look at verse eight in chapter two. So we have this idea of the supremacy of Christ. 
On top of that, we have this idea that God was pleased to dwell in his fullness in Jesus. Now listen to what happens in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. In other words, if the supremacy of Christ truly reigns in our lives, then we will not be taken captive by empty philosophies and, and, and filthy religion, according to human tradition or according to the elemental spirits of the world. And you may go, why in the world did he write that? Because Colossians, the people in Colossae were dealing with a, a group of people from the region of Phrygia, and they basically were worshipers of the elements of the world. Um, you know, it's probably the early seeds of witchcraft, uh, this idea of worshiping earth, worshiping the wind and the trees and, and, and everything else, all of the elements. And so he's just speaking specifically to this group in that regard. So he said, look, don't get, don't get tripped up in all that stuff. All that stuff is of the world and not according to Christ. Now, this is what I want to use as the bridge for us this morning. How do we practically live out the supremacy of Christ in our lives on a daily basis that makes sense to a world that is looking at our life. Look at verse nine. For in him, that is Jesus, for in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Okay, we saw that already in chapter one, right? But look what he does. In verse 10, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So here's the idea that Paul is painting in this book of Colossians. Christ is supreme. He is the exact representation of the Father. The Father was pleased to dwell in Jesus in his fullness. And what he just did in, in chapter 2 here, verses 8, 9, and 10, is said, oh, and by the way, the fullness of God that was pleased to dwell in Jesus is pleased to dwell in you. So the reality is when we start trying to take a look at the practicality of living out the supremacy in Christ, what I wanted to do is lay this foundation. It's not up to us in our power, in our strength, in our knowledge, in our experience to do that. Do we apply that in our lives? Yes, that's called wisdom. But it, it's not up to our spiritual bravado, if you will, to live out the supremacy of Christ in our lives. No, the scripture teaches us that we do that because, or we're enabled to do that because God was pleased to dwell in Jesus and Jesus is pleased to dwell in us. The very work of God himself in Jesus is the very work of God in us that allows us to live out this idea of the supremacy of Christ in our lives. Now, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So take a right, just the next book over. So I've entitled this message today, The Evidence of the Supremacy of Christ in the Life of a Christ Follower. And there's no, absolutely no way for me to tackle uh, every evidence, so I've chosen two. And you can take, uh, after we've done what we've done today, you can take the idea of the work that we've done this morning together and apply it to other attributes that you'll see in Christ's life that are portrayed for us in the scripture, and you, you can go on and do further work with a study if you choose to do so. First Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to read verse 2 through 5a, 
What I mean by that, if you don't know what 5A is, and we'll go to 5B here in just a moment, just to, this is Bible study time, so if you don't know this, uh, you need to know this. It'll help make sense when someone splits a verse and says there's 5A and 5B, we're just cutting the verse in half. Because 5A teaches something specific, 5B is going to follow that up, and we're going to pick that up in just a moment, okay? A little technicality, but that's where we are. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Uh, just pause for a moment and, and know that there are people that you don't even know of that are praying for you on a very regular, if not daily basis. And they're thanking God for you. If the supremacy of Christ in your life is painting a realistic picture of who God is to the onlooking culture, to your family, to your children, to people that you work with, your colleagues, if that's happening, the the reality is they're thanking God for you on a regular basis. That should encourage you because it's not by our strength or by our might that we paint that realistic picture. So Paul's saying to these folks, look, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering you before our God and our Father for these reasons, for your work of faith, for your labor of love, and your steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse four, for we know, brothers, by the love of God that he has chosen you In other words, the supremacy of Christ is real in your life. We see that. We see that God's chosen you. We see that that you are are living out this idea of Christ first in your life. And then in verse 5a, because of our gospel, we know this because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The first attribute here are evidence that God is or Christ is supreme in our life, is our lives are lived with conviction. Men, if Christ is supreme in our life, it will flesh itself out in conviction. Paul uses uh, one of his favorite little triad of terms. You guys remember 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul says there are three great things, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these things is love, right? Well, so when he's writing to the church of Thessalonica, you see, then he says in verse three, I'm remembering you before God, our, our God, our Father, for your work of faith, so there's our faith, your labor of love, and your steadfast hope. So he's bringing up this theme again of faith, hope, and love. But he does something pretty interesting. This first phrase, when it has, has to do with this idea of conviction, that we should live with conviction, is this idea that he portrays as the work of faith. A work of faith. A lot of times we think of, of faith as something that's out there, that's not tangible. Um, if, you, if you look at other pieces of scripture, it says is faith and, and hope is, is in something that's unseen, it's, it's out there. God is spirit, right? We can't see God. The Bible says no one has ever seen God. The Bible says that, that God is spirit and he dwells in unapproachable light. That's who he is. That's the beauty of Christ, right? Because God made himself flesh and dwelt among us so that we could experience God and see God. But what's interesting here is Paul, Paul marries this idea of work of faith. And I would say the, the first way that you and I know that Christ is reigning supreme in our lives and it's working itself out practically is that you and I uh, have this 
um, ongoing work of faith in our life. And it's not something that's intangible. He actually puts this word work here, which means to display something in an activity or, or a deed or an action. And so what he's getting after here is if Christ is reigning supreme in your life and you are a man of conviction, then your faith will demonstrate itself by action. In other words, it's getting beyond the idea of talk. A lot of people hear us talk about God, but the question is, do they see the supremacy of Christ reigning in our lives in such a way that our deeds portray that, that our actions portray that? Recently walked through a pretty difficult situation with, with a gentleman who uh, says he's a follower of Christ. I don't, I don't doubt that. Um, but I, there's this old adage that I've always lived by And that is this idea of when life bumps into you, what spills out? You see, it's one one thing to talk about God. It's one thing to church speak, if you will, to have all the answers. But I mean, when it really gets tough and life bumps into us, the question is, does Jesus spill out? That's the indication that we are in a, in a relationship with God where we're allowing Jesus to reign supreme in our lives. When the reality of life bumps into us, what spills out? I wrote down this uh, phrase for you. I have it there on your sheet of paper. It's this, this first idea. People who live with conviction are people of action. And I wrote this out in my notes this way. It it's, goes beyond even the idea of action and doing to the idea of being. Maybe I need to unpack that a little bit. Being a man of conviction and being a person of conviction is a person that is action-oriented, if you will, with your faith. But it moves beyond just doing works. It's this idea of always being in the state of Christ reigning supreme in our lives. Probably the clearer, more clear indication, again, is this idea of when trouble comes, what's our reaction? And when we are in a state of being where Christ is reigning supreme in our lives, then we're prepared. Paul goes on with this next idea, the labor of love. What does it mean to be a a man of conviction? He says, you're remembered before God because of your work of faith, but also because of your labor of love. And this is, this is an interesting pair of words that he's put together here. It's, he's drawing this idea that love is a state of discomfort. It's burdensome love. You know, this idea that we're to love others is a biblical idea, but it's not a, that's not necessarily a touchy-feely expression in the scriptures, that we're just supposed to love everybody. In fact, I've seen people take that to the, to the extreme where they're, they are literally doormats in front of people. In other words, they just let people walk right over them and, and clean the mud off them, uh, on, on them. They're just a, a doormat. They just lay their lives down and never put up a fight And Jesus, listen, when Jesus came, he did more to to, kind of disrupt the system, if you will, than anyone else that's ever existed. He came in and said, this is what love is. And he demonstrated it by, by living out this burdensome kind of love. I'll say a couple things to you. You can write this down, Luke 10, 27. 
Luke 10, 27 says that we're to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. It goes on to say that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is a burdensome kind of love, a laborious love that we love God and that we love others. I want to keep unpacking this. He puts this word labor, your labor of love. And what he's, what he's getting at here is he's drawing the per, this picture of childbirth. And how in the world or why in the world would you put that with love when we're talking about this idea of conviction? Because remember the verse, in verse five, he said, look, you're, you're living out the gospel. It's not only in word, but in deed. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, he said. You're living out the gospel with full conviction. And so he talks about this idea of labor of love. He's drawn the picture of a, a lady giving birth, this idea of a burdensome love, of going through whatever it takes to get to the end. I think this is what Paul's getting after here. You see, a woman, when she gets to the end of her discomfort and difficulty, she has the child, right? And so very quickly, she forgets about what she went through to get to the outcome of having the child. Listen, when we're men of conviction, when we're people of conviction, we're more concerned with the process and the outcome rather than the recognition. When Christ reigns supreme in our lives, you and I will be more concerned with the process, the laborious love, the work of faith. We're more concerned with the outcome rather than the recognition. And I want to tell you, the church today is screwed up because it's more concerned about recognition than the supremacy of Christ. It's more concerned about boasting about the size and the numbers and the baptism and look what we've done and look what we've done and look what we've done. That has very little to nothing to do with the supremacy of Christ unless it was of the Spirit. Galatians 1.10 says that we should not be motivated by man, but that we should be motivated by God. By the supremacy of Christ in our lives. Galatians 1.10 says, don't work for man. Don't work for the recognition of man, but work laboriously for the process of the gospel, for the outcome of the gospel. When we're men of conviction, we will press into the process and forget about the recognition because all the glory, all the recognition, all the outcome is of God, for God, and unto God. And we should be pleased with him just deciding to use us in the process. Let me give you an illustration. I've coached baseball all my life. My son's 15 years old. Um, I held out as long as I could last season. He just moved to Midland Classical. They couldn't find a baseball coach. Um, so at the end, I, I jumped in with a, the junior hires last year and uh, took my hat off the shelf, if you will, and coached one more year of baseball. Um, I, I put about 11 or 12 years in on the baseball field, loved it, coaching, of course, played baseball growing up and everything. Let me give you an illustration that kind of uh, will hit home if you're a fan of all of baseball. Um, coaching over the years, there were always kids that were going to ride the bench until these rules came into place where you had to play a kid every other inning. Um, and I'm for that. I'm for kids getting to play, but I'm also for winning, right? I mean, I'm a, also, I want to win the game. Um, and so, you know, I wrestled with that over the years. And before this rule came in where you had to play kids every other inning, no kid could sit more than one inning, there were kids that rode the bench. They rode the pine the whole time. Um, I had no problem with that. 
right? I, I didn't. I mean, I was like, okay, I'm going to keep coaching you and coaching you and coaching you. And when you're ready to be in the game, I'm going to put you in the game. But that was old school think, right? Old school thought. Back in those days, this, this happened. I watched it game after game after game. Um, it seemed that these kids never really worked hard enough to get in the ball game. They just didn't, they didn't have the conviction to put the process and the effort in to get the outcome that they really wanted. They wanted to be in the game, but they were unwilling to work at it. What these kids started doing about fourth or fifth inning when we were moving towards the end of the game, they'd be riding the bench and I, I would see them, you know, I'm over there coaching third base and these kids are on the bench. Um, you know, we've had kids out there sliding into second, sliding into third. Their pants are all dirty, right? Their jerseys are dirty. And so what these kids started doing is about midway through the ball game is they, were, they would start taking dirt and patting it on their pants, so that when we finished the game, it would look like they were in the game, right? Because they were all dirty, but they never played a play. And so this idea of, of laborious uh, love is moving beyond recognition and putting in the effort in the process to allow Christ to reign supreme in our lives and forgetting about the recognition, what these kids wanted to do was get the recognition of being in the game, but they were not willing to allow the process to work its course so they'd be ready for the game. Here's the reality, gentlemen. Most men who call themselves followers of Christ, when it comes to the idea of supremacy of Christ in their lives, ride the pine for all of their life. And they pat dirt on their spiritual pants. And they make it look like they played a really hard game. They make it look like maybe they stole home on a suicide squeeze. But really, they're just posers, right? They're just guys that said they were a part of the team, but really never worked out the idea of what does conviction look like? What does it mean for me to be a man of conviction that drives me to engage? You see, these kids, they didn't have enough conviction or love of the game to work hard enough to get a position on the field. And I just wonder, what, what, is, what does it take for us to have a godly conviction? We know about conviction in the workplace. We know about conviction in other areas of our lives, whether it be hunting or, or NASCAR or music or, or whatever it is. We know about having conviction that drives us to engage. But what does that look like for us when it comes to this idea of the supremacy of Christ? Paul goes on to talk about the steadfastness of hope. A little of time, I'll just jump to the goods. People of conviction stay the course with patience and endurance even when it gets hard. I wrote it this way in my notes. God has never called me to easy. An indication that Christ and the supremacy of Christ is being fleshed out in our lives spiritually is, is I think, this idea of, you know, how hard is it around me right now? And how difficult is this walk? How challenging is this walk? Because I've come to know in my life that when it's hard and when it's challenging and when the battle is raging and I feel that, that's when I know I have the opportunity for Christ to reign supreme in my life. 
When it feels easy and when it looks easy, it's a good indication for me that I've, I've kind of taken a seat on the pine, if you will, to stay with the illustration. God's never called me to easy. He's never called you to easy. He's called you to a battle that is raging for souls to either enjoy the spirit of God forever in heaven or to be separated from him in hell for eternity. It is a battle and it calls for conviction. People of conviction stay the course with patience and endurance even when it's hard. So let me apply this stuff and we'll move on to our second point. Men of conviction, people of conviction make the most of opportunities to advance the gospel. You guys have probably heard me teaching here long enough to know that I believe and I want you to believe that whatever you do for a living is God's call on your life. God's call on my life, I drive to a church and work. That's what I do. 25 years, I've been a pastor on staff. This is what I do. I drive to this location. This is my workplace. But my call is no different from your call that the supremacy of Christ might reign and rule in your life in your workplace where you're called to go and advance the gospel. Uh, this man is sitting in this room. He said this to me recently. It was a great line. I wrote it down in my iPad, iCal journal. That's where I journal, in my iCal and my iPad. That made sense to you, you're a Mac guy. So he said, sometimes, you know, you gotta, you gotta do the hard things that you maybe don't wanna do so that you can do the things that you want to do, right? I mean, sometimes you gotta do the things maybe that you don't wanna do to do the things that you wanna do. I mean, it just, it just happens like that, right? I wanna kind of put a twist on that and, and, and phrase it to you this way. You get to do what you do for a living so that you can do what God has called you to do. Think about that. You get to do what you do for a living. God has given you the desires of your heart. He has placed in you the desire to work wherever you're working. If he's changing that desire, that's great. He's allowed you to do what you're doing so that you can do what he wants you to do and what he wants you to do where you're working is advance the gospel. And we advance the gospel when we're men of conviction in the workplace. You don't have to become a priest, a monk, a nun, whatever. You are where you're supposed to be, called by God to be a man of conviction, allow the supremacy of Christ to work its way out in your life so that you'll advance the gospel. Maybe you just need to start here today with this question, what does it look like in my life to advance the gospel at work? Now go back to what I said earlier. Work of faith, this idea of action moves beyond talk. It moves beyond uh, the things that you've learned, knowledge, and it moves into this labor of love. It's this idea of, of thought and knowledge and wisdom lived out in a way that makes sense to people. In other words, if you go into the workplace and say, hey, John, you're at the water cooler. Why don't we turn to Ephesians chapter four and look at, and you go into your preacher voice and you sound like you could be on Christian radio. Ah, turn that off on the way here. It's making me want to throw up. I'm going, Christian, why do, why do they think Christians have to sound like this? You know, hey, uh. Jesus talked about pigs. He talked about farmers. 
In other words, he talked about things that made sense to people. That's your platform. But it can't stop there. So what does it look like for you to advance the gospel? What does it look like for you to live out a picture in a laborious love kind of way that draws a picture for others around you that says, Christ reigns supreme in me. You don't even have, you don't even have to ask the question. All right, I've been to the water cooler seven times with this guy. Seven is a holy number. Therefore, on the seventh time that I've met him here at the water cooler, I need to ask him before he leaves, because we may not have the eighth time, if you die tonight, do you know if you'll spend eternity in heaven or hell? You don't don't even have to get to the question. If Christ reigns supreme in your life, others will see that and want that. If not, you're gonna drive them crazy and rub them wrong for the rest of their life. You follow me on that? They're gonna see something in you that draws them and God will do his work. You you don't even have to try to conjure up how it's gonna do. You just gotta figure out how you're gonna advance the gospel. Another word of application. When the supremacy of Christ takes root in our lives, you will not go on ignoring the unceasing promptings of the Holy Spirit to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Let me rephrase that a little in, in a more simple way. When the supremacy of Christ takes root in your life, you will not settle for something you can accomplish on your own for the sake of the gospel. You see, when Christ reigns supreme in our lives, the Holy Spirit, what he begins to do is he begins to press in on us in an unceasing kind of way. In other words, he doesn't stop. He never stops pressing in on us to push us towards God-sized moments for something that we can't take credit for, but it's something that we know because of the supremacy of Christ at work in our lives, God did something greater in us. And I wanna tell you, man, if you haven't figured this out yet, that's what you were created for. You were created for God to do a greater work that you could ever accomplish on your own. That's the adventure. That's what he's called you to. That's what he wants to blow your mind with. It's a God-sized moment that's greater than you ever could think or experience on your own. Last time I checked, the death rate was 100%. That's not really true, right? I mean, I don't know of all the people who've ever lived, you take the two guys in the Old Testament that God just snatched up out of this world. They didn't die, so you engineers figure that out. You know, how many people have ever lived less to? The idea for us is, is the death rate is at 100%. I recently read this. It's a great idea. It's a great thought. The graveyard is full of untold stories. The graveyard is full of inventions that never were invented. The graveyard is full of books that were never written. Graveyard is full of mind-blowing breakthroughs that could have changed society and culture because men and women didn't have the conviction to act on what God was putting in them. How do you, how do do I set in motion a course of action that will allow you to unleash God's best in you? I believe it starts with conviction. Conviction. What does the supremacy of Christ in our life look like? I believe it it starts with conviction. 
And I'll tell you this, guys, people will follow people with conviction. And I'm talking about godly conviction. I'm not talking about these idiots that go in and think that they're leaders because they're loud or because they think that uh, they can lead by this, this uh, malicious power, this dictator kind of power, and they get leaders that follow them for a little while only until they fail and, and um, kind of uh, blow up because Christ isn't reigning supreme. I'm not talking about those kind of guys. I'm saying people will follow you when the supremacy of Christ reigns true in your life. And I wrote it this way, Christ-centered conviction equals untapped potential. The second thing that we're going to take a look at real quickly here is how do we know that the evidence or how is uh, the authenticity or excuse me, the supremacy of Christ evidence in our life? It's because we live an authentic life. 5b, verse 5b, I said we get to it, here we are. Verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Look what Paul just said. He said, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. In other words, he said, we came and lived in front of you with Christ reigning supreme in our lives. As a result of that, you became imitators of us and of the Lord because it was the Lord that was at work within us. So he said, we came as Christ living supreme in our lives. You imitated us. Look at the progression. And you saw what was at work with us. And so in verse seven, so then you became example to other people and other people started imitating you living with Christ reigning supreme in your lives and it began to happen over and over and over and over again authenticity authenticity means this from an undisputed origin so if we are authentic men we are from an undisputed origin what is our undisputed origin let's go back to hebrews chapter one let's go back to colossians chapter one and two our undisputed origin is jesus christ in us a, a sign of Christ reigning supreme in our lives is that we are authentic. We are people that can live a life in front of others and others can look into our lives and watch our lives and they will see Jesus and because they see Jesus, they start living like Jesus. And because Christ is reigning supreme in their lives, people begin watching their lives who watched our lives and they begin living like Jesus. So a good question here for you and me to wrestle with is this. Are we reproducing people who love Jesus? How do we advance the gospel at work? We reproduce people who love Jesus. What does it mean to be authentic? It means to be a person who is worth imitating. This word used for imitators in the Bible in this verse actually points back to the, the root word for disciple. Let me ask you this, man. We got just a couple of minutes left. Who are you intentionally discipling? Not who is watching your life from afar, but who are you intentionally speaking into? Who are you intentionally asking to come alongside of your life? And you go, well, I've never discipled anybody. You should be. And you could be. You just need to ask someone. You don't have to have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. But you need to bring people alongside of you, maybe people younger, maybe colleagues, 
Maybe it's your son or daughter, but you need to be discipling people. A sign that Jesus Christ is reigning supreme in our lives is that we live an authentic life and we are uh, the type of person that is bringing others alongside of us, saying to them, imitate me. But what we're saying is, imitate the Jesus that you see in me. I don't have time for this, but let me just, let me just say this. The only thing that your wife loves about you is the Jesus in you, Period. Maybe we ought to stop right there. As a matter of fact, we, uh, you know, we will. You got all the rest of my notes. Listen. The only thing, the only thing that you have to offer this world is Jesus. It's the only thing your wife loves about you. It's the only hope that your kids see in your life. It's Jesus. So we see the importance of letting Christ reign, reign supreme in our lives. Let's pray and you can get out of here. God, thanks for today. Thanks for these gentlemen. Thanks for your word. My gosh, it's amazing. Thank you for this idea that, God, you decided to come to us. Not only that, you decided to jump inside of us and dwell in us so that we could live a life where you reign supreme in us. Help us do that, God. Help me do that. Help us to be men of conviction, men that are authentic, men that live lives worth imitating. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, guys. See you.